want to invite you to have a seat and also to grab uh, your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. So as you know, maybe you don't know, uh, for whatever reason, we could say maybe you don't know because of COVID, uh, we took a break from our Mark series. And so we had been working through the Gospel of Mark. We made it to chapter 4. And uh, we've taken a break, and now we're looking at a series called The Gospel-Centered Life. And so we're breaking down and trying to understand what the gospel-centered life actually means. So this morning, we're going to be using, looking at Luke chapter 18, and and hoping to grasp a a greater understanding of what the gospel truly means in our lives. And so uh, we've got one slide for you this morning, well, several slides, but the first one is a reminder or or a review of last week. And so last week we said, hey, if we're going to talk about the gospel-centered life, let's take just a moment and clearly define what the gospel means actually is. And so if you didn't write this down last week, here's your your second chance. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not the slide that's up there, but that is what that is. That's the next slide. But anyway, you can write that one down too. So the gospel, I'll say it, is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of of Jesus Christ. So that's the good news. That's the gospel. We're going to be looking at that for nine weeks. But when we talk about the gospel-centered life, we ask, what is, the, what, is, what is that? How do I remain centered on the gospel that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, it's, it's, it's been worded like this, and I like it. It's the continual rediscovery of these truths, that God is more holy than you can imagine, that you are more sinful than you realize, and the cross is more powerful than you know. It's the continual rediscovery in the life of a Christian that God is more holy than you can imagine, you are more sinful than you realize, and the cross is more powerful than you know. So that's what we're going to be talking about for the next nine weeks, or for them, sorry, for the next eight weeks. And the picture that we drew last week It's called the Gospel Grid, and it's this timeline that goes across the screen. And at some point in time, there's a dividing line, and at that point, that is when, that's the moment of conversion. And so that timeline now, there's a divergence in the line. There's an upward stroke that comes from that point, and that upward stroke is an increasing awareness of God's holiness. It's constantly and continually being able to see God, not, not him becoming greater, not be, him becoming more holy or more set apart, but us actually being able to see him with clarity. So that line is going up. And the other line that is diverging is the bottom line, and that's going down, and it's an increasing awareness of our sin. And so as we grow in our faith, we become more and more aware of God's otherness, of his holiness, of his righteousness, and more and more aware of our sinfulness. And those two points continually diverge and become greater and greater apart from one another. And as they do, the power of the cross of Christ becomes even greater and able to span that distance, no matter how great it is, no matter how sinful you are, no matter at what point that you realize God is this holy, 
and you're this far away, that you're this sinful, can the cross of Christ span the two? And in the gospel-centered life, we come to the conclusion that yes, it can, and it does. And this is where the power of the gospel really is found. And so this is what we're talking about. This is what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. The gospel brings justification, but it also brings sanctification. It's continually realizing that God is more holy than you can imagine, more sinful than you realize, and the cross is more powerful than you know. And so that's where we're at when we become Christians. We see our sin, we see the the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and we hear of the good news of the cross of Christ, and we say, that's the answer. It's been revealed to us, and we receive that. That's how we become a Christian. But we don't just stay there in that place. And there's some things that can actually get us off track. This morning, I want to talk about two things that can get us off track, that can hinder our growth. And those two things are pretending and performing. Pretending and performing. Perhaps there's a pit in your stomach as I say those two words. I know that as I stand behind this podium and I say those two words and I know what I'm about to preach, the conviction of God just rains on me. And my stomach gets in knots because I know that I've been guilty of pretending and I know that I've been guilty of performing. Maybe you're the same way this morning. Maybe you'd be willing to say, hey, I think that what you're about to talk about is something that I need to hear this morning. I, I, I believe that that's the case. That's my prayer. So before I give you the definitions of pretending and performing, before we talk too much about that, I want us, actually want us to look at a case study this morning. So I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 18. Hopefully you're there by now. If not, it should be on the screen. But I'm going to read this passage with you. It's Luke chapter 18. I want to read verses 9 to 14. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. This is what the Word of God says. He also told this parable to some who trusted, speaking of Jesus, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. God, we, we recognize that we need you this morning. We need your words. We need your spirit. We need to be humbled. It's a thing that we can't even do ourselves. So we look to you this morning and we ask that you do that, that you'd give us a wisdom, that you'd give us a clarity and an understanding. That as we work through this text this morning, as we wrestle with this question as to whether we are pretending or performing, would you shine light in our hearts? Would we see you, Jesus, in the power of your cross, 
as more powerful than we could have ever imagined this morning. This is our prayer. This is our hope. We're here this morning, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we're going to be talking about pretending and performing, but as we do that, I want to walk through this text. So look, look in verse number 9. Look at what Jesus is doing here. This is really interesting. It says, he also told this parable, this little story about these two men going up to pray. He told it to a group of people, and in that group of people, he had a specific subgroup in mind. And who were they? They were some people who trusted in themselves. And as, what does that mean that they trusted in themselves? Well, they thought that they were righteous, and then they began to treat others with contempt, with disdain, frustrated at them because they couldn't be as righteous as they were. It's interesting. Jesus is about to tell them a story, a parable about the, a very man, a man that was doing the very same thing. We say this type of thing a lot. We've noticed it in the, in the Gospel of Mark, but do you see the grace of Jesus as he does that? These men are going down the wrong path. A path that leads to nowhere. They can't be self-righteous. That's impossible. And the fact that they would treat others with contempt and rely on their own strength is so unbiblical. Even of the Old Testament, why would they think that they could do that? They're blinded. And what does Jesus do? With grace, he steps in. He crawls them near. And he allows them to see who they really are. It made me think of God sending Nathan to David, King David, in the Old Testament. He had uh, to tell him the story about a, this man who had stolen a lamb. David got all upset and, and self-righteous and thought, I can't believe that somebody would steal a lamb from somebody else. He would sacrifice that lamb and, and feed it to his neighbor when, or to his guest when his neighbor only had one lamb and he had many. Nathan just held the mirror up and said, you are the man. You are the one that has done this. And in that moment, conviction of God falls on David and he realizes what he's done. This is grace that God has done that. My prayer this morning is that we wouldn't just look at the Pharisees and think, God, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm not like these people that look at other people with contempt God's grace that he's showing us a mirror this morning. He's saying, hey, is it possible that you are also like that Pharisee? That you also are treating other people with content because you don't do that thing that they do. You do something different and you do it better. I hope that God would do that this morning. That he would soften our hearts just as he did these men here, I believe. They trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own righteousness and they treated other people with contempt. May it not be said of us. May we see ourselves clearly this morning. I want to look at this phrase that they, they trusted in themselves. That's got to be the saddest verse in this passage this morning. They, they trusted in themselves. They are of all men most miserable and without hope. Because anyone who trusts in themselves has no hope. I said this a moment ago. But they ought to know better than to trust in themselves. We looked at this last week. The Old Testament is re replete with explicit statements about the sinful state of mankind, even the sinful state of God's chosen people. And they weren't able to fulfill the law of God. Even the fact that the law itself was not given so that they could become righteous, but that it would reveal to them that they were not righteous. And of their own accord, they couldn't become righteous. So that they, that they trusted themselves 
but they were righteous. Sad. This idea of righteous, objectively, were they righteous? No. In comparison to other people, were they more righteous? Possibly. This idea of righteousness, sometimes we use it in a relative way. As it relates to, to another person, or when in comparison, maybe we consider ourselves more righteous, and so therefore we would say maybe we're righteous, but we're not so bold to say that. We might would say that we're good, and other, we're better than other people. The problem with this idea that they thought that they were righteous is, is kind of like when you're in eighth grade, and you didn't study for a test. And the test comes, and you know, I mean, you've known for weeks the teacher was doing such a great job of letting you know, hey, this is going to be a difficult test. No, no, you really need to be preparing. How many of you have been preparing? Uh, nobody raises their hand, and you're like, yes, yes. You get, you just in that moment, there's like a little, just a hint of maybe there will be a curve. Maybe there will be a curve. And so then you begin to, to, to just become even more relaxed, even though he's warning you and he's telling you, hey, don't become relaxed. You need to study. And you're thinking, hey, nobody else is studying. This is going to be like, I'm going to get away with it. And that night you think, well, I shouldn't be doing this. I, I should be studying. I'm not going to do it. The next night comes around, same, things ha- same thing happens. Uh, the test day comes, pit in the stomach. You know that it's, 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 it's going to be bad. And it's way worse than you thought. You're pretty confident you're going to get a 20 or a 30 or something like that. Maybe none of you can relate to that, but I'm, that's basically my education. <laughs> the test comes and you're just praying that everybody will bomb it. And the teacher, to save face, to save his own r- reputation, that he'll raise the grade. But then you look over and there's this girl. You know who she is. She's got pigtails. She's over there. She's sitting up straight. She's not worried one little bit. Why? Because she stayed up every night two weeks ago and moving forward studying for this test. She was prepared. And you know that when she receives that paper and you see A+, plus, she's, she's at the front. You know she is. You're at the back. I know how you are. And you see that she could, you can see from there that she got a 100. She got an A and you know there's no hope. There is no grading on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. And even if he did, Jesus Christ is who we are compared to. He fulfilled the law. And so if we were to think, well, well, we can use the law in a relative way. We can use righteousness in a relative way. That's fine. Use it in that way. But when you do, don't be so foolish to compare yourself to the lunkhead that sits to the left or to the right. But look to Christ. The law was fulfilled in Christ. And so to think that you're more righteous than someone else is irrelevant. Because you are not righteous when compared to Christ. But it is helpful for us to compare two people. Let's not put ourselves in this situation, but it is helpful. God, Christ wants us in this story to compare two people. He wants us to see the difference between the two. And so let's do it. Look at verse 10. It says, Two men went up in the temple to pray. Went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. These two men could be uh, n- no more different than one another. A Pharisee is a religious teacher. He's not just a religious teacher, but he is an elite religious teacher. He's a teacher of teachers. He's the big shot. He's the Bible answer man. He's got it all together. That's the Pharisee. The other is the tax collector. Also a Jew. 
So they're alike in that way, but where they really, you really begin to see the difference is the fact that the, the tax collector is considered a traitor amongst his people. He's considered a traitor amongst his people. He's an opportunist. Essentially, he works for the Romans. And what does he do for the Romans? Well, he collects money from the Jews, takes a slice off the top, a hefty slice, and he gives the rest to the Romans. He's considered a deceiver, an opportunist, taking advantage of his people. These two men are drastically different. And what's interesting this morning is we get to hear the prayers of both of these men. We get to see in their prayers their disposition, their posture before God. And it's, in a word, enlightening. Let's listen to the prayer of the first man. Look at verse 11. It says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, he's made room. He needs plenty of space for his prayer. He's a spectacle. He begins to pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day and give tithes of all, or twice a week, and give tithes of all that I get. First thing that strikes me in his prayer, he says, I thank you. And so you would expect that if he's thanking God, that the next thing that he would say would be something he's thanking God for. But instead, what we hear and what we see here is actually a, a textbook humble brag. This is a textbook humble brag. He's thanking God? No. He's called a meeting there at the temple. He's invoked the name of Yahweh so that those around him can hear that he is awesome. And he doesn't give thanks to God, not truly. He's giving thanks to himself. I do this, not God. You have made me different. God, you've, you've rescued me from this. You've, you've delivered me into this. Out of that, he doesn't say that. He says, I am different. I've done this. I'm not like them. And so there's no connection between his apparent uh, braggadocious attitude and his fake gratitude. There's no connection between the two. He wants everybody to know, he even wants God to know that he thinks he's awesome. Listen, he says he's not like the other man. We talked about this a moment ago. We're not called to be holier than thou. We're called to be holy as he is holy. So it's irrelevant that we're not like other men or other women. It's irrelevant. And I'll give you a warning because it is challenging that as we walk through our lives, we're observant people. We look around and we say, well, hey, they're about my age. Same stage of life. Got a little bit more money than me, it seems. We, we make those observations and we think, well, what did they do differently? What could I do differently? We compare ourselves to those around us. We do that in every area of life. It's part of who we are as humans. It's part of our identity. It's part of culture that we would do something like that. And so it's dangerous for us. In the faith, as we consider the gospel, it's dangerous for us to look at those around us and think, hey, I'm, they may have more money than me, but I tithe more than they do, maybe. I think I do. I bet I do. I bet I do. We have these types of thoughts in our own minds. We compare ourselves to other people. We say things like this, I would never treat my spouse that way. 
I would do much better. I would never treat my children that way. I would never subject my family to that. I would never do this. I would never do that. And we compare ourselves and we're lulled into this comfortable space as we compare ourselves to one another. But again, he's never called us to be holier than thou. He's called us to be holy as he is. So it's so sad to hear the prayer of this man. He gets lulled into believing that he's being graded on a curve. That as long as he's doing better than the guy next to him or those around him in his town or in his subdivision that he's in his church or life group that he's doing well. He's got this mentality of, of one guy that was with some of his friends and they ran into a bear out in the woods. He begins to take his shoes off. And the friend says, why are you taking your shoes off? You can't outrun that bear. And he says, well, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. He's got this idea that he has to compete with those around him. Yet at the end of the day, we are not trying to outrun our neighbors. That's not the point. Listen to what he says. He's trusting in something. Some, what is he trusting and receiving his righteousness from? Where does he anchor that at? Well, verse 12 says that he, he says, I fast twice a week. Is that the law summed up? Is that, is that what he's supposed to do? Is that, is that the 613 Old Testament laws all condensed into one? I fast twice a week? Why does he even reference that? Where did that even come from? He's taking the law of the Old Testament. He's taking then the teachings on the Old Testament law. And then he's modifying all that into some creation that he's made himself and then he's superimposed he's elevating himself by this and then he's superimposing that on other people and suppressing them with it he's changing the rules that's not even a rule why is he why is he even mentioned that one day this spring i spent some time with my family at city park and uh, that's that's our that's the place we like to hang out and I like to hang out there with my family right so we're there we're with, i'm with my youngest daughter caroline we're down in the field and uh she begins to talk about these extra popsicles, particularly one extra popsicle that is there at the house. Mom had made some homemade fruit popsicles, and everybody got one, but just the way that it worked out, there was one left because it was Dad's. He was at work when everybody else ate one, and, and so there was one left, and she was like, Dad, there's one popsicle left, and uh, I think it might be yours, but I'll make a deal with you. I'll, I want that popsicle. And so here's what we do. Mom's sitting up there on the hill. This is how she talks, right? She says, Mom's sitting up there. She says, I tell you what, I'll race you to Mom. And whoever touches her hand first gets the popsicle. Okay. I said, deal. Well, you are going to learn a little bit about me as a father. Well, I'm not going to give my kids a handout. No way. She's, if she's going to get that popsicle, she's going to earn it. And so when she says go, by the way, she's already taken like 10 steps because that's how she is. She's a cheater. you got to watch her. She takes 10 steps, and then she says, go! And then I take off. I'm running as well. Well, I overcame her just, boom. I'm back. I'm done. I go up. I smack Sarah's hand. I sit down next to her. I pull my water bottle out, and I say, yes, when we get home, it's my popsicle. She never lets up. She runs for another 30 seconds, because that's how far behind me she was. She runs up the hill. She runs right past Sarah, runs toward this tree, and she says, new plan, first one to touch the tree gets the popsicle, touches the tree. As she finishes that statement, what has she done? That wasn't the rule. That wasn't the law. That wasn't what we had agreed upon, and yet 
she changed mid-stride, changed the law that we had agreed to, that we were subordinate under. She changed it, and then she suppressed me with that and won the popsicle. Of course, I ate the popsicle. She's a cheater. We don't honor those types of things in our family. And not only do we not honor that in our family, but God does not honor that either. This is what the Pharisees would do. This is what we do as well. We hear the law of God. We hear what he commands us to do. We hear the righteous standard that he wants us to tow. And, and we, we say, yeah, that's interesting. And we take some of it and we look at the things that we're really good at. And we say, man, God made a good rule right here. And I'm really good at following this rule right here. And so I have now become righteous because I follow this rule. And we push that rule a little bit higher. And the other rules that we're not so good at, well, we, we downplay those and we pull them down. We recreate the law of God in such a way that it elevates us and suppresses those around us. Because then we say, well, they're not doing what I'm doing. They're not as good as this as I am. They don't touch the tree as fast as I do, and therefore I'm better, and I win the prize. It's silly to think of an eight-year-old girl thinking that way, and yet we do it all the time. What was she doing? Well, she considered her desperate position. She wasn't going to make it, and so what she did was she changed the rules so that they would benefit her and that I would lose. This Pharisee that putting all these things together, he thinks he's righteous before God because he fasts twice a week. It's not even a law. He creates his own pathway to God and then he judges others who are not on that very same pathway. I love this next word, verse 13. But, so there's a shift here. Look what it says. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. First, he's standing afar off. The Pharisee, he comes right in dead center up to the front. He makes sure that he's got plenty of space. Nobody's too close to him. Well, the, fair, the, the tax collector says, I know that's not my place. I know I can't stand there. I don't want to be too close to this righteous guy. I don't want to be too close to God. I have no position there. I have no right to come forward. His outward posture was more in line with his actual position. He knew he was not worthy, and so he stood far off. By the way, that is the proper posture. That is the proper position to recognize that because of your sin, that you have to stand far off from God and that you may not draw near. Only those who are in Christ are welcomed to come boldly to the throne. Not based on their own worth, but on the basis of Christ. And by the way, you say, well, that doesn't sound right. To those who have not repented of their sin, have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they must stand afar off. But to those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the scriptures command us, they call us to draw to the throne, draw close to the throne. How and what and what with what attitude? Boldly, confidently. Not in our own confidence, but in Christ's, in the work of the cross. It goes on to say that this man wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. I think of Psalm 121. 
Verse 1, it says, David says, I lift my eyes up to the hills from whence cometh my help. He's looking to the hills because he knows that his salvation is coming from that very place. And this man says, I know that salvation only comes from that hill, but I'm not even worthy to look. He couldn't do it. He knew that God reigned in the heavens and in holiness, and he wasn't even worthy to look, let alone enter his presence. This man was beginning to see God in his glory. He was beginning to see his own sinfulness and the distance between them. And he knew that he could not overcome that distance. He couldn't do it. Is that you this morning? Have you come to that place in your life where you recognize, just as this tax collector, that your sin and God's holiness are so far apart that you could never span them? I was talking with somebody this week, and they, were, they told me the, 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 this sarcastic statement by an artist. He said, oh, great, You've, you can climb a, a two-foot ladder. Congratulations. When, we, when it comes to spanning the distance between your sinfulness and God's holiness, you, you, you can't make it. The Bible uses language that leads us to, or that paints the picture of us falling short. Our, our greatest shot, we, the longest shot that we could take toward the target of God's holiness, it still falls short. This guy knew that, and he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. Again, just the, the initial nouns that are used to describe these men, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, that could not be any more different and respectively, their prayers could not be any more different. Jesus doesn't waste any time in letting us know the outcome of what happens in, in the reception of these two men's prayers. Look at verse, verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. One of them went down to his house justified. One of them went down to his house with his sins forgiven, and the other, not so much. He was trusting in himself. He didn't need any help, and therefore he didn't receive any. Why is that? Well, look at what it says. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever trusts in himself, he'll find out soon enough. Everyone who won't receive the grace of Jesus as he leans in, as the Spirit draws him, and they reject it, they turn it away. They see the truths of God, they see the truths of the gospel, and they say, I don't need to trust in that, I can trust in myself. One day they will be humbled, Jesus is saying. And to the one who humbles himself, who folds under the conviction of God in his life, that man, that woman, that child will be exalted. So this biblical case study, this, this picture is so helpful for us as we look at it and we consider that this man was pretending and performing. If we were to continue to read the passage, we'd, we'd also read of the rich young ruler. I considered uh, referencing that this morning, but I'll leave that for, for you later, maybe today or this week, to consider how he was also pretending and performing. But let's look and talk about what it means to do these two things. First, let's consider pretending pretending. I have a definition for you. Pretending is minimizing our sinfulness by thinking that we are better than we really are. 
Pretending is minimizing our sinfulness by thinking we are better than we really are. Again, we talked last week about the cross diagram. After you become a Christian, there's an increasing awareness of your sin. More and more sinful. Not just the fact that you did this act and you stopped doing that act, but now the fact that you're tempted to do that act. That it's, there's something in you that's leading you to do that. You become even aware of that and you're like, man, I'm way more sinful. I'm way more helpless than I thought I was. You begin thinking, shouldn't I be becoming less sinful? Shouldn't I be becoming less aware of my sin as a Christian as I'm sanctified? In a practical sense, yes. But in another sense, we're more and more aware of how costly our sin is and how deep its roots run in our lives. And if you're not truly resting in Christ's righteousness, as your sinfulness is revealed, especially in the presence of others, in the context of the local church, we're tempted to begin to pretend. And we think things like this, if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't love me. If they knew how sinful and how deep that sin runs in my heart, they wouldn't want me here. They'd kick me out of life group. They'd laugh me out of D group. There's a temptation to feel that way there's a temptation to think that way and eventually your sinfulness becomes so crushing that you begin to look for relief and you start to pretend i'm not really that sinful i'm not we put on clean clothes maybe we dress fancy or maybe we don't or maybe we what i don't, I don't know whatever it is we do something to find relief and to hide and to cover our sin in some way that's pretending and so that's the bottom line. That's what we do in reference to the bottom line. We begin to pretend we're not actually as bad as we really are. But let's consider the top line. It's an increasing awareness of God's holiness. And so regularly, again, God is not becoming more holy. But as you see him, as you perceive God, he is. And that is also devastating. God is perfect. He commands us to be perfect. And in those moments that we realize that we don't even come close to measuring up, and we begin to think, yes, but he's got me so close, I should be able to make it the rest of the way. He delivered me from this sin. He delivered me from that sin. I should be able to get the rest of the way. And so we begin to trust in ourselves. And we say, why? After five years, am I still struggling with this same sin? I've been a Christian for five years. Why am I still tempted in this area? Why can I still not achieve God's righteousness? In my own power, we begin to think thoughts like this. And if we're not rooted in God's acceptance of us because of Jesus and the work that he's done on the cross, then we begin to compensate in some way in our lives and attempt to earn God's approval in our lives. If I could just do this, if I could just do that, God would finally accept me. The church would finally accept me. If I could stop doing this, they, I, would be, I would arrive. I would be welcomed. I would be considered a saint. So what do we begin to do? Well, we, we try in our own power as if it depends on it, as if our success depends on us being accepted by God or, or vice versa. Our acceptance depends on us being successful. That's performing. 
the definition I want to give you this morning is this. Performing is minimizing God's holiness by thinking we can obtain it through our own efforts. Pretending is minimizing God's holiness by thinking we can obtain it through our own efforts. And so we perform. We look to the cross of Christ and we say, that was sufficient in saving me and justifying me, and now sanctification is a work that I must do myself. And we look at ourselves on Sunday morning and we say, we look around the room and we think, hey, all these people are so much more righteous than I. I, I, I won't come back until I'm more righteous. I'll stay in the darkness. I'll work to perform. Or maybe I'll stay in the church and I'll do all of these things. I'll, I'll put my hands into everything. I'll, I'll show up at every time and I'll be a part of every program and every event. And I'll serve until I'm just dead because that's the only way that God will accept me. I have to add to the work of Christ. I have to add to the cross. That's performing. And by the way, we already saw this in the life of the Pharisee. One of the side effects of pretending and performing is that we begin to use that righteous system and that performing, we begin to use that against other people. And so it's not successful in our lives. We recognize that. We see no matter how many times we fast, no, much, no matter how, um, what amount we give or how many times we show up, we recognize that we still can't perform and be successful to reach God's holy, righteous standard. And so then we begin to not just claw our ways up, but to claw other people down. So the very standard that we develop, that righteous system that we develop, we begin to use on others around us and we attack. And that's what this Pharisee was doing. And you'd say, I would never pray a prayer like that. I would never say anything like that. It's such a repugnant prayer. It's such a terrible thing to say. But is that really true? Is that really true in your life? You see, we talked about this. He, he, this Pharisee, he creates a, a new standard, a set of rules of righteousness, and then he, he tries to make himself righteous, and then he suppresses others with it as well. You say, I would never do that. Well, let's talk about some contemporary examples. Did that knot in your stomach get a little bit tighter maybe you say things like this I like to have a sharp cut lawn I work hard my lawn every day to make sure it's just kept just so not a week goes by that I'm not out there measuring the grass trimming the hedges watering all the bushes what happens in the heart of that man or woman when they are in that situation when they look across the 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 the, the road or look across the lawn there and they see that this young family moving in with a few kids hardworking young man he's busy family kids running around and screaming they're trying to raise their kids and you know they're not going to mow the lawn as good as you do you begin to get a little bit frustrated he's so busy he hardly has the time to mow the grass and let alone trim the hedges what's he in there doing is he in there playing a video game or What's he doing? What happens in the heart in those situations? Well, you look at your righteousness, your lawn righteousness, and you begin to think, man, I'm far more righteous than that. Well, that, you say, well, that's so silly. We would never say that, but we do. We do. We look at other people and we think somehow we're better than them because we do this one thing better than them, and they didn't even know it was a competition. They didn't even know. That could play out in recycling. I remember one time a man told me, uh, he, man, he just leveled me low because I didn't recycle. And he talked about how every good Christian should recycle. And I think that's a great thing to practice. 
But he didn't recognize it, and I'm not ratting him out, But because I've done it a million times in other ways and in other areas. But he basically created this righteousness built on the recycling, and then he suppressed me with it. And I was like, my goodness, I'm such a terrible person. And by the way, I am a terrible person, but we do recycle now. So uh, if you're judging me, we're in the clear now. I'm also better than that guy. So that's right. <clears throat> In those moments, our wicked hearts, they become validated, and we begin to think that we're better than someone else, and then somehow more acceptable to God. And you say, well, I don't care about my lawn. Don't come look at it, because it's terrible. And you say, I don't do recycling. Ah, forget it. It's all going to burn one day. Maybe that's your opinion. <laughs> but there's something else that's giving you credibility. There's something else in your life that you are receiving and drawing confidence from. What is it? What is it? What in addition to the cross of Christ do you look to for confidence and for validation? I want people to know this about me because if they know this about me, then they'll think I'm better than I really am. I, I, maybe it's in conversation. How can, I fill, how can I just throw these pieces of information about my past and present activities and they'll think I'm better than I really am? Let me list out a few. I drew most of these directly out of the book, The Gospel-Centered Life. The first one is this, job righteousness. Job righteousness. You say things like this, I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. Work harder than most. That woman over there, that man over there, they don't even have a job, so somehow I'm better than them. I've pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Maybe that's you this morning. Another one is family righteousness. You say things like this, because I do things right as a parent, because I parent my children the right way, I'm more godly than those who don't. I can control my kids. Man, this is a good one. I can control my kids. Therefore, I am more righteous than those parents that can't control their kids, and all the kids just got quiet, except for my kids. So job righteousness, family righteousness. What about theological righteousness? This is, a, this is a difficult one. This is a difficult one. We say things like this. I have good theology. They have poor theology. Therefore, God prefers me over those who have bad theology. That's a difficult one. You say, well, I believe this about salvation. Therefore, and these people, they have a, a faulty view of salvation. And so therefore, they're not... They, yeah, we'll call them Christians, but they're not as good as me. What about intellectual righteousness? It's very much related to theological righteousness. It says something like this. I'm a better, I read more. I'm more articulate. I'm more cultural, culturally savvy than others. And that, that obviously makes me superior. Intellectual righteousness. What about schedule righteousness? I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others and more acceptable to God and more pleasing in His sight that I am managed by a schedule and therefore more productive. Uh, the opposite of that, flexibility righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged. I'm sorry, I, I'm in a world that's busy, but I'm flexible and relaxed. And I always make time for others and shame on those who don't. I always make time for those in, in, in the world that need my help, in my city and in my neighborhood. We become righteous in our flexibility. 
related to that one is mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way that everyone else should. I'm a part of this. I'm a part of that. I serve on this night and on this night and every other weekend over here. And nobody else does. And we become righteous in that way. What about legalistic righteousness? I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't date girls that do. Man, most of our men in here can't say that, but I'll let you wonder which one they don't do. But too many Christians are concerned, aren't concerned about holiness these days. We fall into this legalism. In order to be righteous, you don't do these things or you do these things. And while there may be merit to most all of those, there's no righteousness found in them. What about financial righteousness? I manage my money wisely and I stay out of debt. I don't just buy things frivolously and nor am I materialistic. And Christians who can't control their spending may not be Christians at all. We never say things like that. But are those not the thoughts that we have in our minds? Political righteousness. If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. How relative is that? Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. What about this one? This isn't going to be on the screen. Mask righteousness. I love my neighbor and I'm willing to subject myself to increased levels of carbon monoxide and a sweaty face, even if it means saving a life. Isn't that what Jesus would do? I guess I'm more like Jesus than those around me who have a bare face. We become more righteous in that way. And the opposite would be true as well. What about woke righteousness? I know exactly what's going on around me. I listen to those who are oppressed. I clearly see the oppressors. And I'm working to be a part of the solution and not the problem, which is more than the Christians who don't post politically charged statements can say. Is there anything wrong with having voting for the right political party? If there is one. Or having tolerance or wearing a mask or being woke in some, some way or being financially righteous. No, there, there's nothing wrong with these actions. But what happens when we take these things that God has called us to be a part of and called us to do and we end up overemphasizing them, de-emphasizing others and becoming righteous by that? Do any of these sound like you? you've been tempted in any of these areas to give yourself an increased uh, amount of personal value or make yourself feel better than others if so listen you're you're misunderstanding the gospel maybe not utterly maybe not entirely but there is a tweak that needs to be made in your life if you think that any one of those things will add to the righteousness of christ that has been given to the christian Listen, the gospel, you've you got to catch, stick with me. We're, we're, we're getting close to landing the plane. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. How? Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's straight out of Scripture. What about his life saves? Well, it was an obedient life. It was a perfect life, a righteous life. What about his death? It was a substitutionary death. He didn't die for, for himself. He died for us. He died for the elect. He died for those who would turn from their sins and place their faith in him. And so his life was a righteous, obedient life. His death was a substitutionary uh, death. And his resurrection was authentication that God accepted his righteous life and obedient death. 
in our place. With that in mind, this idea of the gospel and the power that it has in the life of a Christian, I want to introduce two theological concepts that are foundational to understanding the nature of the gospel. And the first one is this. Stay with me. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. That, that doctrinal truth says this, that Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. That Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. In his death on the cross, Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath against all those who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And the death, or the, I'm sorry, the heart of the gospel is the good news that Jesus accomplished salvation through his life and death and resurrection. Isaiah tells us about this uh, penal substitutionary atonement. It gives us, helps us to undersee and foretells of what would take place connecting the Old Testament law with the New Testament. Let me break down this statement, penal. It, it, it has this idea of pent- penalty. Jesus' death paid the penalty for the sins of his people. God punished him as if he were guilty of our sins. Substitutionary. On the cross, Jesus stood in the place of his people. He was a substitute. He suffered so that they wouldn't. He was punished so that they could be healed and reconciled to God. He was counted guilty so that they could be counted righteous. Church, so that you could be counted righteous. An atonement. Jesus poured out his life as an offering for our sin. He atoned for them. He covered them. Do you see the connection there? Christ's death on the cross covered our sins. And what do we want to do? We want to cover the fact that our sins are already covered and we want to pretend like they don't even exist. And what are we doing? We're belittling the cross. We're robbing the cross of its glory. We're robbing Jesus of his honor and of his praise. And so that's penal substitutionary atonement. Another statement that I want to introduce to you this morning is double imputation. Double imputation. And it says this, that God credits our sin to Christ. You already know that. But in addition to that, he credits Christ's righteousness to us. So this is the great exchange. Our sin is placed on Christ. His righteousness is placed on us. Do you see the importance of the life and the death and the, bur- and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? His life was his righteous life. His active obedience to the commands of his Father. That's righteousness. That's where we get it. His righteous life is then given to us and placed on us. And in his death, he takes and covers our sin and pays for the penalty. And there's this double imputation. God judges our sin in Christ and he regards us righteous in Christ. That's sometimes, like I said, called double imputation. Our sin to Christ, his righteousness to us. So we're not only acquitted, It's not now like we didn't do anything wrong. Now it's like we did everything right and nothing wrong. It's not just coming to zero, our negative balance being corrected. No, now when we check the balance of our righteous bank account, it is righteous. It's full. And there's nothing lacking there. There's no need for pretending. There's no need for performing the righteous life of Christ has fulfilled the commands in our lives. And his death 
has fulfilled and covered our sin. And so let me ask you a question as we come to a close. Right now, when you think of God, everybody, I want, listen, I don't care how old you are, listen, listen. When you think of God right now, and you see him, imagine he's thinking of you. Personify him a bit. Let him have a face. What does his face look like? As he sees your life this past week, even this morning, the state of your heart this morning, what's on his face? Is he pleased with you? Is he frustrated with you? Is he angry with you? Give me a percentage. This is rhetorical. You don't have to say it out loud. But think of a percentage. At what percent is he pleased with you? Do you have a number? Maybe you're thinking 70%. I'm not that bad. I did pretty good this week. Last week, maybe 30%. This week, 70, 80, maybe. Eh, I don't want to be like the Pharisee. Okay, maybe 60. What, what's his face look like? What percentage is he pleased with you? This is a tricky question, and here's why. Because he is either 100% pleased in you, or is he, he, or he is completely the opposite. He is 100%. His wrath is against you. It's one or the other. You say, how can that be? How can that be? How can it only be one or the other? Because of the cross of Christ. Because of the death, the life, the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When God looks at those who are saved, at those who are the elect, when he looks at them, he sees not the sinfulness that is a reality in your past. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He's covered your sins. He's paid for those. He's, he's taken our, ro- our, our rags, our sinful rags, and he's bore them on his own body and in our place. And in place of that, he has taken his righteous, pure robes and he's placed them around our shoulders. And so when God the Father looks at you, if you're in Christ, he doesn't say, I wish they would, I wish they would do better. I wish they would perform. I wish they would stop pretending. Or I, wish, or I wish they would pretend. He says, I wish they'd stop. You need to know this. There's nothing that you can possibly do to add to the work of Christ. Nothing. There's no need to pretend. There's no need to perform. Ask yourself this question. Is the cross not enough? Is the life of Christ not enough? The answer to that this morning is that it is. And so whether you're pretending thinking that your sinfulness isn't that bad, or you're performing thinking that God's standard is actually within your grasp, you are actually belittling the work of Christ. And your work will not save you. Your tendency to perform is just as cross-mocking and God-belittling as the most aggressive atheist. You're just as belittling, you're just as mocking of God when you try to add to the work of Christ. So do you have a tendency to perform or pretend? What area is it? Why don't we begin this morning sharing with our loved ones, with sharing with those even in this room, maybe in our life group, in our D group, about the areas in your life that you have been pretending and performing. Confess it and repent of it. That's the challenge this morning. As you think about the cross, the, uh, sorry, the gospel-centered life this morning, that's the challenge. Stop pretending. Stop performing. There's no need. Come to Come to Christ, repent of your sin, and believe in the work that he has done on your behalf. I'm going to end with a quote that I shared on social media earlier this week. It's so helpful for me. I hope that it's helpful for you. And it, I think it summarizes a lot of what we're talking about this morning. 
It's by Martin Luther. He said this, I must hearken to the gospel, which teacheth me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me, to wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. It's not my intention to beat this physically into your heads. But brothers and sisters, this is what we need before us every day, every hour. Not that we must work harder, but that Christ has accomplished all of the demands of God in our lives. And we have no need of, repent, of performing or pretending. Would you pray with me? Father, what a truth that we have seen this morning. That there is no righteousness to be gained in pretending or performing. It only binds our eyes and our hands. Spirit, we pray this morning that you would do a work that only you can do. I cannot bring repentance. I can't bring repentance to our own hearts. Father, you, you have to send the Spirit. We, he has to convict of sin. We pray that you would do that this morning. And that if there's somebody here this morning that is far from you, they've been trusting in their own righteousness, they've been mocking the cross and belittling its efforts, we pray that they would repent of that, that they would turn from that, and that they would truly trust in the cross and the life of Christ. God, we pray for the Christians here this morning that have been doing the same thing, belittling Christ's cross, mocking his life as they pretend and perform. Will, we, will that be revealed? Will we draw that into the light? And would it die in the shadow of the cross? This is our prayer. We ask that these things be done in your name, Jesus. Amen.